Pesach is a holiday that evokes many, many ideas. Freedom, tradition, uh, gratitude to Hashem, belief in Hashem, family, parents, children, grandparents. It's also a holiday that is connected with some uh, less lofty, less aspirational ideas, such as money and hard work. Hard work may actually be an aspirational ideal, but money, expense, and uh, that is something connected to probably all Jewish holidays, but particularly to Pesach. Primarily food, buying new kinds of food, more expensive kinds of food, matzah and so on, can be expensive. If you go away for Pesach, that can be expensive. You stay home, that can be expensive. And this is not a new thing. Maybe the levels uh, of some aspects of our consumption can be new sometimes, but the idea that Pesach is connected with spending money is an old one. As we'll see today, this goes back all the way to the Talmud. The Talmud has a classic discussion that involves expenses associated with Pesach. And what we're going to explore today are a number of nexuses between Pesach, the, the holiday of Pesach, and spending money. And the halachic framework, the, the halachic perspectives on this, these cases are, I think, interesting in and of themselves. And they're also interesting case studies in how halacha deals with certain types of economic problems, with economic difficulties, how halacha attempts to resolve certain types of issues. We'll begin by talking a little bit about matzah. Specifically, we'll start with machine matzah. In the 19th century, there was a great controversy, one of the greatest halachic controversies in modern times, about the legitimacy of using machine matzah on Pesach. Before that, before the Industrial Revolution, they didn't really have machines, so they weren't really machine matzahs. As they began to mechanize and industrialize and automate everything, they began to do that to matzah as well. And in various places in Europe, in Germany, in Central European countries, in there, there erupted a major, remarkably vehement dispute about whether machine matzah was kosher for Passover, whether it's kosher for all of Passover, specifically whether you can use it at the Seder. And for whatever reason, this was an extremely heated and extremely bitter debate. There were some of the greatest Gedolei Torah of the time split. Uh, some of them were on both sides. Some of the two of the leading opponents of machine matzah were of Shlomo Kluger, and Rav Chaim Halberstam, the Divrei Chaim of Sanz, and the leading proponent was Rav Yosef Shal Nathanson, the author of the Shaul Meshiv, and they had, uh, they wrote numerous chuvas, essays, letters back and forth, arguing the merits of their position. Now, most of the discussion revolved around the ritual validity of these matzahs. The primary question was, were they sufficiently chametz-free, the, the nature of those early machines, this was even before electricity, these were mechanically operated machines, but there were technical questions having to do with how these machines operated, how this production line worked, and that was the, the, primary, the, that was the primary debate. There were also debates about matzah has to be shmura, it has to be shmura l'shem mitzvah, or l'shem matzah. There were questions about whether machine-produced matzah can be considered matzah l'shma, whether it can be yotze at the seder with such matzah. That's what most of the debate was about. However, there was also a secondary debate about economics. Roshlomo Kluger, who was the leading opponent to machine matzah, certainly the one who wrote the most at length about, the, about his opposition to machine matzah, he did have, he did mention numerous halachic problems he had, 
variety of halachic problems he had with machine matzah. But he writes that his primary concern, his first and foremost concern, he writes, is an economic concern. He says, Rishon Shabarishon. He says, uh, the first point I want to make, he says, the very first point I want to make, it's not Yosher, he says, it's not, it lacks integrity, it lacks Musr, he says, to steal from the poor. How is machine matzah stealing from the poor? They need those jobs. They rely on those jobs. It is a major source of income for these people, for their families. They rely on these uh, seasonal jobs of making the matzah. If you are going to eliminate their jobs by replacing them with machinery, you are going to cause tremendous economic hardship to these people who rely on this income, particularly for Pesach, because Pesach, the expenses are quite high, anyway, he says, and, and they need this money. He talks about the ancient tradition to give, uh, to give Kimcha de Pischa, to give Moz Chitim, money, for, uh, money for, for the Aniyim to help them make Pesach, he says. And at least, he says, if people, in a kind of bitter aside, he says, at least if people would be generous and fulfill their obligations to the poor and give them these, uh, the money they're supposed to do, that would be one thing. But they don't do that. They, they, they don't pay the, the proper assessments, the proper amounts of Moz Chitim. And at the very least, they can give them these jobs, he says, to help them make Pesach. If not, they're, they're Mavatel, the Mitzvah of Tudaka, he says, and it is a, uh, it is a, it's a terrible thing. That's what Shlomo Kluger writes. He writes that it's not fair, it's not Musr, it's not Yosher, to take away the jobs from the Aniyim. They rely on these jobs. This, of course, was the classic argument made beginning with the Luddites who opposed the, the mechanization of England's textile industry. This is always the job. This is always the, the objection raised when, when jobs are eliminated, or they're replaced by automation, by machinery. We still have this today. We have, you know, with tax, we have with you know, self-driving cars. They're going to eliminate all the truck drive, all the truck driving jobs. Sooner or later, they're going to eliminate uh, white-collar jobs as well. They're going to figure out ways to. Uh, they can beat people at chess. They can beat people at go. They can drive cars themselves. Soon, they'll be able to uh, replace lawyers, replace radiologists, replace accountants. And people worry about this, rightfully. Whether you can stop progress entirely, whether you need to find solutions, whether you can invest the money in job training, these are obviously pressing, pressing social and economic questions. But the basic question is one that Roshulon Kluger addresses front and center. He says that it's not fair, it's not fair to the poor, it, it lacks decency, it lacks integrity, he says, to do this to them. And therefore, that is what he calls Rishon Shabarishon, the reason that he gives for opposing machine matzahs. And the truth is, again, even though most of what he wrote deals with the Kashrus questions, after he makes his point, he goes on to the Kashrus questions. We have a, a contemporary author, of Arya Leibish Balachavar, the author of the Shem Aryeh. He writes that he heard a rumor, Hugadli, he was informed, he says, that even though Rishon Kluger spent much of his uh, written argumentation was about the Kashrus questions, he says, his, uh, his real motivation, he says, was the economic one, that he had compassion for the poor, who rely on these jobs, and uh, that was really his underlying motivation, he says, and he concedes that is situational. You can't give a hard and fast rule for this. A Dayan has to decide uh, if someone, if, if a Rav is considering allowing or barring machine matzah, he has to weigh the economic circumstances and decide, but that, he says, he heard was Rav Shalom Kluger's real opposition, despite all the, all the, all the secondary Kashrus questions, he heard that that was Rav Shalom Kluger's real opposition. Now, obviously, those who defended, those who supported machine matzah, did not accept this argument. So why not? What's wrong with this argument? So they made two or three counter-arguments, and again, these counter-arguments are exactly the same 
arguments we find in general, whenever people oppose, uh, oppose increasing efficiency by mechanization, these are the arguments that are typically made. Rav Yosef Shal Nathanson, who was the leading defender, vigorous and vehement defender of machine matzah, he calls this argument Tevel, he says, it's ridiculous, it's, uh, it's preposterous to make these kinds of arguments, he says. He says that the, what, is the, what is the prime concern that we have with matzah? Making it kosher, he says. The, the ultimate goal is to get matzah that is kosher. He says the, we, can't, we, we can't subordinate the kashras of the matzahs, he says, to these types of social engineering, to these types of economic policy considerations. He says that, in, in general, he says, the, the hand matzah system had degenerated in his time to the point that they don't do things properly, that they're lax and careless, and, uh, and, they, and they, don't, they don't do things well. He actually felt that the machine matzahs are much more reliable. Machines do not get tired. They don't take breaks. They don't slack off, he says. Machines have their own problems, but one thing machines are good at is repeated, uh, repeated action, consistent and uh, consistent, repetitive action without getting bored, without slacking off, slackening off in force and vigor, he says. So he thinks machine, the machine matzahs will actually improve the kashras of the matzahs. Again, the, the, uh, this is contingent on the time and the place, but the system that he was familiar with, he says, the hand matzah production system had gotten to be deeply problematic in his view. He says, two years since I've been the av based in here, he says, I have tried to impose some kind of kashra supervision, and we still find that, uh, that it's terrible, that they, uh, they, they, they bake the chametz in between baking matzah in the same, uh, the same facilities. Sounds hair-raising, the things he describes. And also, they get tired. Humans get tired. Uh, you know, we have Paul Bunyan, who can outwork a machine, but uh, we have, you know, the, who the story about? John Deere, the, you know, the, the person who outworked the, 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 outworked the tractor. And that, but in general, people are not as indefatigable as machines. And that's a lot more of a concern, he says. The machines are much more reliable, he says. So the first point is, without even really engaging uh, Ruff Kluger's arguments about economics, he says the, the, primary concern is to, uh, the primary concern is to ensure that the matzahs are produced uh, at as high a standard of kashras as we can, and introducing, uh, using matzahs as a tool for social, for social policy, he says, is uh, completely misguided. Regarding the actual economic arguments, he returns to them in, uh, in another letter and addresses them directly. He says, very sarcastically, he tells Rishul and Kluger, again, these arguments got extremely bitter, I'm not sure why, but uh, he, he, he tells Rishul and Kluger very sarcastically, he says, you're worried about the poor people? He says, I have a question for you, he says. Maybe you should prohibit printing via modern mechanical printing presses, he says, because you're taking so many jobs away from all the workers at the print shops, he says. And perhaps, he says, Chalila, you, Rav Shalom Kluger, he says, perhaps, Chas Shalom, you might have been Nechshol in this. Rav Shalom Kluger printed many svarim. Perhaps in some of your svarim, you may have done the, the unthinkable uh, sin of using a mechanized printing press, he says. And you weren't concerned about that, Neem. All of a sudden, when it comes to one particular industry, you're so worked up about the, the poor people losing jobs, he says. So, you know, if you, if you really want to start being Godre Geder, if you really want to start uh, taking a heavy hand with economic policy and trying to trying to stand athwart the, mar- the march of technology and saying, stop, why don't you do that to printing, to other machines, he says. This whole thing is ridiculous, he says. This, is, uh, this whole thing is ridiculous, the idea that we should ban progress and efficiency and, uh, and uh, the most desirable way of doing things because some people will be economically hurt. That is not a cheshben, and therefore he dismisses this argument out of hand. 
Another one of Rav Nathanson's allies in the defense of machine matzah, a lesser-known figure of a Mordechai Landau, he makes further arguments, a little more sympathy he shows to the, to the workers who were losing their jobs. He says that, you know, he says, what kind of concern is this that we should worry about their jobs? He says that the first point is we need to have the matzahs being produced to as high a standard as possible. You worried about the people's jobs? So fund them, so give them tzedakah, give, give them money. He says, the, he says that there, there are other ways of supporting the poor than by giving them jobs in, in an inefficient way. We can, we, we, this is the, classic, uh, the classical economic argument. If you want to support those who lose their jobs, so have transfer payments, have some other system, have job training, we would say today. The, the, the most efficient way of, uh, of that, that an economist would tell you that the economy, the, the traditional economist view, the economic view would be, design the economy in the most efficient way as you can. You worried about inequality, you worried about uh, the rich having all the money, so find some way to transfer it after the fact. Have taxes, have, uh, have welfare, have job training. That's a lot more efficient. Ha- having an efficient economy, by definition, means more goods are produced for fewer resources. You worried about the inequitable, undesirable distribution of those goods, so find some way of transferring after the fact. But crippling the economy... Insisting on doing things inefficiently is not the best way to do things. If you want to support the poor, support the poor, but don't uh, don't uh, don't do that by, by by forcing the the producers to employ inefficient means of production. Furthermore, he makes another point. He says you're looking at it only from the perspective of labor, perspective of jobs. But let's talk about the perspective of the consumer. He says machine matzahs are cheaper because the matzahs are much cheaper. Obviously, when the producers manage to produce matzahs, matzahs cheaper, we have to run an economic analysis to see how much of that cost saving is passed on to the consumer and how much comes as profit. But Rabbi Landau assumes that at least some of that, uh, at least some of that efficiency is going to be passed along to the consumers as lower prices, which is generally how a free economy works. If the cost of, if the cost of production of some good goes down, then the competition will competition will 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 ensure that the price will go down as well. Assuming we're not dealing with a monopoly or something like that. So the so in general, this is the second argument they make. That first of all, efficiency is good, and you want to support the poor. Do it some other way. Don't, don't give them inefficient jobs. Second, he says that the that that the cost of, of people losing their jobs and losing wages is going to be offset to at least to some extent by lower prices. So who, says, uh, so who says that we should preserve jobs at the expense of high prices? Maybe we should prefer, maybe we should support the lower prices. Lower prices affect everyone, not just the few who work in the industry, and they even affect those who are in the industry who have to buy the matzahs also. Again, you'd have to do an economic analysis to see how, much, uh, how, much, how many jobs are lost and how much money you save per household and wh- whether they offset. These are the same kinds of calculations we do whenever we have things like uh, minimum wage, uh, recently in the news, minimum wage legislation, and so on. You always have to calculate schar mitzvah keneged hafseidah, hefsed mitzvah keneged schar. But at the end of the day, to just look at the workers is, 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 an, incomplete, uh, is an incomplete economic perspective. You have to look at the, the benefit to society as a whole, and therefore they, therefore they reject Rav Shalom Kluger's analysis. The... In general, we do find, in Chosh and Mishpat in general, in, in, in Jewish civil law, we do find this question about how do we balance the rights of businesses, the rights of people trying to make money, with the rights of the public to get goods at the, at the best prices. The Halacha does have certain rules against improper competition. Halacha does have certain rules that protect incumbents and that restrict competition. 
And the Rishonim already acknowledged that, even though the Gemara doesn't really get into this, but the Rishonim acknowledged that, that everything has a cost, that to the extent that you stifle and regulate and limit competition, you're doing a disservice to the general public, to the consumer public, by causing prices to be higher than they normally would. And the Rishonim grapple with how, with, with how we balance these things, that, that, uh, what, what exactly the trade-off is. We're not going to get into all the details of the halacha of competition right now, but the Rishonim, Rav Yosef Ibn Migash and the Ramban, struggle with these questions already. How do we balance the, the, the welfare of the public, who is served by having lower prices, with the welfare of, uh, of the producers, of the, of the, of the, store, of the stores, who, who stand to have their livelihood hurt by, by free and unfettered price competition. Walmart, Amazon, they provide significant benefit to the public, uh, goods at lower prices, and they obviously hurt uh, many independent businesses. So that, that's a great question. There's no easy answer. There, there is a sugi about it in the Gemara. And this is, to some extent, what the, what the Akronim were arguing about, about machine matzah, how much weight should we give to the, how much weight should we give to the, to the harm, the economic harm, to the, the poor workers who lose their jobs, as opposed to how much weight should we give to the consumer public who stand to benefit from having cheaper matzahs. One more, one more point on the question of matzahs, moving away from the specific question of machine matzahs, there's a story they tell about Eliezer Gordon, the great rabbi and Rosh Hashiva of Tels. They say that matzah bakeries used to imply men, women, and children, and they used to work day and night. They didn't have all the labor laws against child labor and against, uh, they don't have all the protections and, that, that we have today. This was in the, the golden age of capitalism around a century ago. The, the Dickinsonian, uh, Dickinsonian laissez-faire, nearly perfect laissez-faire of some European countries and the U.S. So they tell the story that Rav Gordon issued strict orders to close all the, the matzah bakeries and tells by 11 p.m. That was, and, and that was apparently a, a substantial restriction on their operation. So officially, he said the issue was kashrus, similar to Rav Nathanson. He said workers get too tired; they're working all day. Human beings are not machines; they can't uh, they can't work to the to the same standard twenty four hours a day. So officially, he said it was to for kashrus reasons. But his real reason, apparently, he told his family, his real reason was to protect the workers from being exploited and overworked. Rev. Gordon used the threat of uh, pulling the kashra certification of any bakery that would flout his rules. And according to the version of the story I saw, the reason he had to use such a subterfuge, the reason he had to tell people it was for kashra, instead of just saying human beings are selling melokim and they have to be protected as well, is because social welfare wasn't, uh, wasn't a thing back then, it wasn't in vogue, and he felt the only way he'd be listened to was by expressing it in terms of kashrus instead of expressing it in terms of the in, in, in terms of the obligations that man that man has to behave to behave reasonably toward his fellow men i guess that's something of a damning critique of the time but in any event Rav gordon was apparently concerned was a uh, a reformer a labor reformer he did feel that the free and unfettered capitalism and operation of the time had to be stopped and the, the workers had to be given a break Again, the, there are always two sides to this. Some people might argue that by telling, telling the bakeries they can't operate, the, the workers will be getting less money. Maybe they'd rather work and uh, get more money. Where to draw the line between exploitation and opportunity is very difficult. But Rav Gordon, he was there. He knew his community. And he felt that it was in the best interest 
a little bit of paternalism, a little bit of economic regulation here would be to the workers' best interest to give them some time off, to, give them to, to pre- prevent them from being ground into the ground. This is what we do today. We have all kinds of rules protecting workers from themselves, even if they'd be willing to work. We don't let them because we believe that they can be exploited by employers and by the economic system, and that's what he did as well in Tells about a century ago. Moving on, moving on from Matzah, we will move on to something called Tuzhemak, or Tuzhemsky rum. Tuzhemak was a fake uh, ersatz kind of rum. Real rum is produced from sugarcane. You have to get that from the New World, from the Caribbean, Latin America. The pirates drink it. Non-pirates like it too. And uh, they they began to make it in, they began to make, rum was apparently popular in Europe as well. It wasn't so easy, I guess, to ship all the sugar, the sugar cane over from, over from the New World. They began to make a, an ersatz kind of rum out of either potatoes or sugar beets. Uh, again, to make alcohol, what you need essentially is sugar. I, I don't know enough about alcohol to know which types of sugars make better alcohols and which ones are worse. But apparently in Central Europe, in the 19th century, there was a very popular drink called tuzhemak, which was often made from sugar beets. Not real rum, which is made from sugar cane, but uh, this is a uh, good enough, uh, good enough to drink, and it was made of sugar beets. Now, obviously, it, that the the advantage of making for Pesach, from a religious perspective, the advantage of making a either one of those would be kosher for Passover, either made from sugar cane or sugar beets. But the point is, the advantage of this stuff over grain-based alcohols is that grain-based alcohols cannot be drunk on Pesach, and this stuff can. So apparently in the 19th century, the kosher for Passover liquor industry was undergoing a tectonic shift. Until then, they used some other process, either actual rum or, or, or some other kind of uh, process of making kosher for Passover liquor, which was fairly expensive. Then when they developed the, the techniques to produce tuzhemak, this enabled the, the liquor producers to produce kosher for Passover liquor at much more affordable prices. However, the people who had these facilities, the factories that made this stuff, they were a different set of businessmen than the ones who had been invested in the previous system. And the businessmen who had, who had been producing the previous kind of liquor, whatever it was, they stood to, uh, to lose, to have, uh, they stood to suffer economic fallout if people would begin to buy the new stuff. So they appealed to Rav Aaron Moshe Taubis, a Romanian posik. they appealed to him, to enjoin the purchase of the Tuzhemak because it would be bad for their business. And their primary argument was a kind of nativist argument. They argued that Tuzhemak was produced by factories on, on an industrial scale. Factory owners were non-Jews. They were Jewish merchants. They were members of the tribe. Therefore, they wanted to be protected from their profits, or maybe, maybe they would even lose money, against their business being, their lunch being eaten by the non-Jewish factory owners, they wanted the Jews to be enjoined. The market obviously was a Jewish market. The market, at least this market for kosher for Passover liquor, was Jewish. And they wanted the Jewish market to be compelled to buy from them. And they argued that there is a halacha. There is a halacha that's brought, discussed by numerous poskim, that a Jew is supposed to patronize other Jews, buy Jewish. Buy Jewish is a mitzvah. The mitzvah to buy from other Jews. Therefore, he said, we are the ones selling old-fashioned kosher for Passover liquor. The non, our non-Jewish neighbors are selling the tuzhemak. We want Jews to be instructed to buy from us and not from them. So Rabbi Taubis rejects their request. 
he and he 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 declines to enjoin Jews from buying Tuzhimak, and he gives three reasons. Three reasons, all of which are interesting and all of which have uh, significant ramifications beyond the specific case of Tuzhimak. Reason number one. This is perhaps the most important and the most wide-ranging. Reason number one, he says, is there is a major debate, going back to the time of the Ramah, a major lively debate going on for centuries down to the Chavetz Chaim and contemporary times, whether this mitzvah to buy Jewish, to patronize Jews, even when, and not non-Jews, there is a major debate as to whether that applies even when the, the prices being charged by the Jew is, are higher than the prices being charged by the non-Jews. The Ramah, in a famous tshuva, rule that it does. You have to buy Jewish even if it's more expensive. Many other poskim disagree. Some poskim, like the Chavetz Chaim, distinguish between whether the price is a little bit higher, the cost of buying Jewish is a little bit higher, as opposed to a lot higher. How we define the difference between a little bit higher and a lot higher is also very unclear. But Rabbi Taubis, in this tshuva, in, the ta- in his Tafas Reim, he argues strongly against the position of the Ramah, he argues there is no obligation to buy Jewish if it is more expensive. Therefore, he says, insofar as Tuzhimak is cheaper than the old-style liquor, he says, there is no obligation, no obligation to, buy, to buy Jewish, he says, that that, that 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 would be a strong argument in favor, his first argument in favor of, uh, of allowing Jews to buy the non-Jewish-produced Tuzhimak instead of the Jewish-produced uh, old-fashioned liquor. First argument. Second argument, he says, this whole discussion about I'm patronizing a Jew, I'm patronizing a non-Jew, which is preferable, that's only when it's black and white, whether the Jew is a Jew and the non-Jew is a non-Jew. He says if the non-Jew has partners, there are other people in his venture who stand to profit from your business, then he says it's not Jew against non-Jew, it's Jew against a, a group, including some Jews. He says when you make kosher for Passover liquor, how do you do it? Obviously, the Gentiles can't produce it by themselves. They're, they're not, uh, we can't trust them for Hilchas Pesach. They, they don't know Hilchas Pesach. Obviously, he says, we have to have a Jewish crew to produce the liquor. Today, we would use a hechsher. Today, we would simply have Jewish overseers, mashkichim. Back then, it sounds, they would actually have a Jewish team, a Jewish crew who'd produce the stuff uh, for, the, for, for the non-Jews with their factories. But anyway, he says, Jews stand to benefit from this uh, Tuzhimach produced in the non-Jewish factories, he says. Therefore, he says, it's not Jew versus non-Jew. It's Jew versus partnership, partnership between Jew and non-Jew, he says. So therefore, there are Jews on both sides of the equation. So at this point, he says, so who who decides? Why should you decide to prefer the Jewish producers of the early liquor, the original liquor, maybe we should decide to, uh, to, to support the Jews who are producing Tuzhimak in the non-Jewish factories. I don't know the economic context here. I don't know how much money each, each side stood to gain. I don't know how much money of the Tuzhimak was captured by the Gentile factory owners and how much was actually went to the Jewish operators, the Jewish crew. I don't know how much the old merchants would have made. But qualitatively, at least, Rabbi Taubus is making the point that the Qualitatively, Rabbi Taubus makes the point that it's not Jew against non-Jew. There are Jews on both sides of this, and therefore, therefore we, therefore we can. Uh, it's a wash, and therefore we won't con- compel people to buy only the old, the old style kind of liquor. This is something that comes up in other scenarios as well. That 
uh, that there'll often be businesses which are joint ventures, there'll be some Jews and non-Jews involved. According to Rabbi Taubus, as long as there are some Jews at least involved in the non-Jewish venture as well, even if they're not the owners, if they're not the factory owners, if they're not the ones who presumably stand to gain the lion's share of the profits, the capitalists, the industrialists are always the ones who, uh, certainly back then, were the, surely were the ones who would gain most of the profit, they would pay their employees something, but uh, nevertheless, the fact, that, the fact that the Jews are gaining as well, the, this, uh, this, this, this uh, eliminates the concern for buying non-Jewish. And this is a common question that comes up today as well. A person is considering buying, at, at buying his groceries at a Jewish grocery store or a non-Jewish grocery store. Let's say it's a Jewish product he's buying. He's buying, uh, he's buying a, a kosher product and actually a, a Jewish-produced product. So either way, Jews will benefit. You could argue that since, in this case, the product is, he's buying the same Jewish product in either store, so that cancels out, and then you're left with non-Jewish store, Jewish store. Or you can argue that since I'm supporting Jews in some way, maybe, maybe, that's, uh, maybe that's more lenient. You can, have the, you can also have this case in the same store, whatever store you're shopping at, if there are Jewish products and non-Jewish products available, and they're more or less equivalent to you, but one is cheaper. You can have uh, you know, Goya beans and, uh, and Mishpacha beans or whatever it is, you know, ShopRite flour and uh, Kemach flour. So it's the same store, but in, in one case, the, the producer is going to be getting your business, in one case not. So these are all questions also, to, to what extent are we supposed to follow, the, what extent are we required, are we encouraged to follow the Salacha of supporting Jews? It's a subject of considerable debate. Rabbi Taubus makes the point, though, that you do have to consider the big picture. It's not just a question of who owns the factory. If there are other Jews involved, you have to make sure to take them into account as well. The third argument of Rabbi Taubus, this is, I think, by far the most uh, entertaining of his three arguments. He says, we mentioned earlier that whenever we discuss, that whenever we discuss restrictions as opposed to uh, granting freedom to economic activity, that affects the, the price as well. So he says, Tujimak was cheaper than the other liquor. So I would have probably stopped there and said, okay, so because there's a benefit to Jewish consumers to spend less money for Pesach, that itself is a, is a consideration. But Rabbi Tabas goes even further. He says, again, the Ramah Paskin, that you have to spend more money to support Jews. Says Rabbi Tabas, but this is different. Because if liquor is cheaper, then more people can buy it and more liquor will be drunk. If liquor is expensive, that's how supply and demand works, elastic demand. If the price is high, then the demand, uh, demand will be less. So therefore, he says that if, we, uh, if liquor is cheaper, there'll be more of it consumed. And that is a religious good, he says, because simchas yamtov. It's a mitzvah to have simcha and yamtov. The Gemara talks about wine and candy and kloyos vagozim, candy and cloves and meat. Liquor. Liquor is part of simchas yamtov too. Making liquor more affordable will result in a net gain of simchas yamtov. That is a significant mitzvah consideration, and therefore that's also a reason not to uh, impose this restriction to keep the prices artificially high by compelling Jews to buy the old type of liquor, because we'll have more simchas yamtov if we allow the Jews to buy more liquor, because the new stuff is cheaper. That's the part of the tshuva that's relevant to us. He goes on and says that he heard, in the name of Rabbi Kiveger, that he heard that there was uh, that there's an Isser involved in, uh, that there is a technical Chametz problem in this Tuzhimak production, and uh, if so, he says, he defers to the Tariq Beger, he says, he's not going to be Mekel if, if Gedole Taru and Machmer, but in terms of economics, this is his, this is his argument about the, the economics of Tuzhimak on Pesach. The final area I want to discuss 
goes back to a handful of Gemaras. There are three Gemaras, three, three cases in the Gemara, where the Gemara relates that rabbis, rabbis of the Mishnah, rabbis of the Talmud, use the halacha as a cudgel, as a tool, to, 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 uh, to, to drive economic policy. They weren't happy with merchants overcharging, with gouging, we would call it, uh, gouging the prices of certain, of certain commodities, and therefore various chachamim in the Gemara use the halacha as a, as, as, as a cudgel to force merchants to cooperate. One Gemara is in Psachim. The Gemara brings a machlokis Rav and Shmuel. Rav held that pots, at least pots of cheres, earthenware pots, that were used for chametz, they can't just be kept around as we do and, you know, and put away until after Pesach and taken out again and used. The pots have to be destroyed. The Gemara explains Rav is based on certain opinions that we don't paskin like, Rav held that uh, Rav had certain very strict cheetahs involved, and that's why we're not going to get into the details, but Rav held that the pots have to be destroyed, they can't be kept and used after Pesach. Shmuel disagreed. Shmuel said, you don't have to be destroyed, they don't have to be destroyed, you can't use them on Pesach, you can't cash or earthenware, but you keep it around, you take it out after Pesach, what we do to, to different types of pots, earthenware or not, that, that, that we're not going to cash or for Pesach. You can't, or you don't want to, you keep them around, we paskin like Shmuel. Then the Gemara says, As de Shmuel Shmuel expressed his same shita in another context. Shmuel told the pot sellers that, I, I warn you, I'm giving you an ultimatum, that you had better charge reasonable prices for your pots after Pesach. You would better not try to gouge people. There would be a great rush for new pots, according to Rav, after Pesach. People would be uh, rushing to buy new pots, and they would take advantage and gouge. Shmuel warned, warned them, don't try that, don't do that. If you, if you do, he says, what will I do? I will paskin like Rabbi Shimon, I will paskin that you can use the old pots after Pesach. So the Gemara says, well, wait a second, if that's what Shmuel actually held, Shmuel originally said, that is the halacha. So why did he, have, why did he threaten to say this? Why did he negotiate with them? I, I won't tell anybody if you charge reasonable prices. That's the halacha, so just say it's mutter, the Gemara says. So just tell people, you don't, you don't need new pots after Pesach. So the Gemara says, Astre de Rav Hava. This was Rav's territory. Rav, who was Machmer, was the Mara de Astra. He was the rabbi whose authority held in this area. Therefore, Shmuel did not want to come in and say, I disagree with Rav. I think you're allowed to use old pots. The people here should be properly deferring to Rav. But Shmuel warned the, the pot sellers, if you take advantage, I will throw caution to the winds, and I will then reveal my own sheet, and I'll tell everyone, you don't need to follow Rav, you can pass, be passing like Rabbi Shimon, that the pots after Pesach are fine. So this is one Gemara, that Shmuel himself had a more lenient view. He wasn't going to express it because, out of deference to Rav, but if the pot sellers would take advantage and price gouge with regard to the pots, then he would uh, dispense with that consideration, and he would, and he would announce his own sheet uh, that old pots are mut. The Gemara in Sukkah has a somewhat more ambiguous uh, analog to this story. The Gemara, the Mishnah in Sukkah, brings different opinions about the standards for kosher hadassim, for the four species on Sukkahs. There are different opinions about how many hadassim you need. We take three. There are some opinions you only need one. The, the hadassim should have their heads intact, should not be ketumim, should not have the heads cut off. We try to be stringent with regard to that. There are some opinions that are lenient and say that you can have, uh, you can have, as long as one of them is not severed, that's enough. One opinion says all three can be severed. 
So there are a variety of different opinions which are more or less strict with regard to the, the kashrus of Hadassim. So the Gemara says, Shmuel holds like Rabbi Tarfan. Rabbi Tarfan says you need three, but they can all have their heads cut off, which is an intermediate view. And then the Gemara says that Shmuel, again, Shmuel goes Latame, Shmuel goes Lashitase. Shmuel told the Hadassim sellers the same, the same exact style of uh, ultimatum he gave in Psachim. He told the Hadassim sellers, you had better not try to gouge prices of the Hadassim. And if you do, I will paskin like Rabbi Tarfan. I hold like Rabbi Tarfan. And if you, if you try to charge too, too much, if people want Dafka Hadassim to have their heads intact, and you try to take advantage and raise the prices, I will tell everyone, nope, we pass them like Rabbi Tarfan, they can have heads cut off, and then you'll see your business will suffer. So cooperate with me and, and charge reasonable prices, and if you don't, I will use the halacha to uh, hurt your business. So here again, the Gemara says, why did he tell him like Rabbi Tarfan? He should have told him like Rabbi Akiva, who's even more lenient. The Gemara says, no, actually Rabbi Tarfan is the most lenient because it's actually easier to find three that are cut off, Rabbi Tarfan actually is the most lenient view. One good one is harder to find than three uh, not-so-good ones. So this Gemara is very unclear how Shmuel actually paskin. If the Gemara assumes Shmuel actually paskin like Rabbi Tarfan, then why is it asking he should have told him like Rabbi Akiva? So the Rishonim, Tosus, and the Ritva, Rishonim struggle to understand what the Gemara is telling us. The Gemara Msachim clearly indicates that Shmuel would only use the Halacha, would only threaten to paskin something that he actually held like. He wouldn't threaten to distort the halacha. That, that's, that, that's, uh, that's fraud. That's, that's a distortion of the halacha. You can't do that, the Ritva says. The Gemara Psachim indicates he would never have threatened something which is against halacha. He would have thre- he would, the most he would have threatened was to ignore the, the respect he's supposed to have for Rav and to, and to d- dispense, dismiss his authority in his place. This Gemara in Sukkah is considerably less clear. Some Rishonim Tosfah seem to understand that Shmuel might actually have threatened to actually issue a wrong halacha. Shmuel was actually threatening to distort the halacha in order, and he would have looked for whichever opinion was the most lenient, whatever he could have gotten away with, as the Gemara seems to imply. Shmuel was willing to just say whatever he had to say. He, I guess he couldn't, make, he couldn't get away with making up a whole new sheet that had no source in the Mishnah. People knew the Mishnah. But Shmuel was going to do whatever it took, according to summary shown him. Shmuel was going to threat, at least threaten, whether he would have gone through with it. Maybe he was bluffing, it's hard to know. But at least, uh, at least in terms of his bluff, his ultimatum, Shmuel was willing to threaten anything, according to some Rishonim, to get them to lower their prices. He was willing to use the halacha to such an extent that he was at least threatening to issue a, an incorrect ruling for the purpose of securing the, the, the economic policy that he wanted. The third Gemara is a Gemara in Baba Basra and Croesus. This is a, an even more technical area. It has to do with Karbanos how many karbanos women have to bring in certain scenarios, if they had multiple, a woman in the time of the temple would have to bring a carbon when she had a child. If, what if she had multiple children before she had a chance to bring the carbon? So the Gemara had there were all kinds of different shitas in the Mishnah and the Brisa. And we, again, we're not going to get into the technicalities here, but at one point there, there, were, there, was a, there was a situation where women used to bring multiple karbanos, according to one of the more stringent views. They, so the demand was quite high because women were bringing so many karbanos that the, the, that the demand was high and it drove the prices up. So the Brysa relates that the, the Brysa relates that kinim, pairs of birds, these birds, pigeons we use for the karbanos, they had gotten so expensive because of the high demand that they cost a, they cost a dinar zav, a golden dinar, which was quite expensive. Rabbi Shimon Gamliel says, this shall not stand. 
I swear I am going to put a stop to this. So what did he do? He said, before I go to sleep tonight, I will, I will uh, yank the rug out from under this market. I will crash this market. What did he do? So this is before they had Reddit. They, they couldn't manipulate the market through the modern techniques. What he did was, he said that, I'm teaching you a new halacha. A woman who, who has five of these circumstances does not need to bring five separate karbanos. She only needs to bring one carbon. So the demand was thereby uh, slashed by an order of magnitude or so, and the price accordingly cratered. Umdukinin bobayom berivasayim. So the, a, a pair of birds then became that day a quarter of a silver dinar, which was again orders of magnitude less than it was before. So Rabbi Shimon Gamliel accomplished his goal of cratering the market by. In, in this case, he actually issued a halachic ruling. Shmuel, in the previous two cases, was threatening to issue a halachic ruling. In this case, he actually went out and he taught. He actually issued a halachic ruling, which caused the market to crater. Now, there's a great debate, again, over here, there's a great debate between Rashi and Tosus and many other Rishonim and Achronim as to whether the ruling that he issued was the correct ruling. People had a, a chumrah, a, beyond the letter of the law, mistaken chumrah, and he told them the Ikra Din, or no, whether he actually issued a bogus ruling, he actually issued an incorrect halachic ruling. How could he do that? How could he possibly issue a false halachic ruling, as noble as his goals may have been, to uh, manipulate the economy in favor of the, in, to, to, reduce the, to reduce the prices? How could he have issued a false ruling? So Rashi, followed by some other achronim, some achronim, Rashi says, Eis lasos lashem. This is what we call hara The rabbis... Some people take this a little too far. They think that where there's a rabbinic will, that there's always a halachic way. Not really correct. But sometimes there is a principle of hara shah. The rabbis have the power to, uh, as a temporary dispensation, to override a halacha in the Torah. According to Rashi, that's what they did over here. They, uh, they issued, he, he, as a hara shah, he issued an incorrect halacha because the long-term goal of causing this market to settle down and become more reasonable was worth it. And it was worth not, not just threatening, but actually issuing an incorrect ruling. There was a short-term harasha. I, I don't know what would have happened once he uh, retracted the harasha, why the prices wouldn't have risen again. Maybe, maybe, maybe they realized that he was uh, determined enough and he'd do it again, or he'd find some other way to, uh, to ruin them again, to destroy their business again. But the, this is what he did. As a harasha, according to Rashi, he issued an actually improper ahalachic ruling, in order to, at, at all costs, drive the market price down. Tosus disagrees. Tosus said it was a correct ruling, that he actually held that was the halacha, even though people had been more stringent. As a chumrah, they had done that before, either mistakenly or as a chumrah, and he said, no, it's not the halacha, and I'm not going to let the chumrah stand because uh, it's so important to bring the prices down. That's how, that's how some Rishonim explained the Hadassim Gemara as well. Some Rishonim bring up shot that even if Shmuel actually held that the Hadassim were kosher, when, uh, if they met a lower standard, he didn't announce that because it's a hinder mitzvah to get better hadassim. But once they were gouging prices, he said, enough, uh, I'm going to tell people not to do the hinder if the, if the, if the price they're going to have to pay is overwhelming. This, this third Gemara, this Gemara of the Rabbi Leal driving the prices down, is invoked in a classic, very famous tshuva by Rabbi Menachem Mendel Krochmal of Nicholsburg, the author of the Temach there was a case there where, the, in um, Poland, 17th century, there was a case there where the non-Jewish fish sellers 
were gouging prices for fish. Jews used to buy fish for Shabbos. Fish was considered the ultimate delicacy in many communities, even more apparently than meat or chicken. So fish was highly prized by the Jews in honor of Shabbos. And the, the Christian fish sellers would take advantage and would extort uh, very high prices for the fish. Now again, we have a problem here. This is a little bit uh, probably beyond the scope of our talk today. But it's very difficult to know, to define gouging in an economically meaningful way. Various economists, even uh, mainstream economists, not just conservative ideologues, will argue that there's no such thing as gouging. That prices are set by supply and demand. If there's a lot of demand for a product with a limited supply, prices go up. That's not gouging. That's simply the way free market economics works. Where do you draw the line between gouging and between charging what the market will bear and between ordinary capitalism is a very difficult question. But the Tamak Tzedek was, uh, they were upset in his community. They were upset that the Christians were charging exorbitant prices for the fish because they saw the demand was very high. So the community decided to, to, in, to institute a boycott, to implement a boycott of fish. For how long? Initially for two months. And they helped, and they hoped that that would drive the price of fish down. Some of his Talmidim, the Tamach Tzedek Talmidim, said, wait a second, if we go for two months without fish, that's a halachic problem. There's a mitzvah to have fish on Shabbos. Onik Shabbos. Fish is the best thing we can have. We're giving up fish. We're being mevatel Onik Shabbos. So even though it's a desirable economic result to uh, drive down the fish prices, who said we can be mevatel Onik Shabbos for the purpose of driving down the fish prices? Now, other Akronim said, what kind of question is that? Onik Shabbos, yes, but you can, be, you can have Onik Shabbos in other ways. Make something else that tastes good. Uh, there, 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 are, there are lots of good foods out there. Why does Onik Shabbos have to be fish? All right. But the Tzemach Tzedek took it as uh, axiomatic that Onik Shabbos requires fish, and if you do not have fish, you are compromising, you are blatantly compromising your Onik Shabbos. So the question is, can we do that? Can we accept upon ourselves a short-term violation of Onik Shabbos to secure the long-term goal of reducing fish prices in the future. So, says the Tzemach Tzedek, yes, that is fine. That is a good idea. He brings the sheet of Rashi in the Sugya of the birds, of the birds that Rabbi Shem and Gamliel drove down their price. Rashi says it's a Harah Shah. He issued a false, incorrect ruling because of his determination to drive down the prices. We can do the same thing, he says. We can issue, we can accept upon ourselves a bitul, a violation of Onik Shabbos for the purpose of bringing down fish prices. Even though Kavach Shabbos is very important, yes, it's Daraisa, and he doesn't think fish are fungible, he doesn't think you can substitute anything else for them. Nevertheless, he says, just like Rabbi Shimon Gamliel was able to violate Onik Shabbos, violate the, the laws of, of Karbanos, of Tuma and Tara, for the purpose of driving down bird prices, we can be mevatel the mitzvah of Onik Shabbos on a temporary basis in order to drive down the price of, in order to drive down the price of, uh, of birds. Now, uh, of fish. Now, some people have understood his, his point to be an economic point, that, the, that what he meant to say was that to save Jews from paying exorbitant prices, to, to, to bring them economic relief, that was the justification. But the truth is, if you read the rest of his tshuva, he says, no, he says it's for the mitzvah. It's for the mitzvah of Onik Shabbos, the long-term mitzvah. We're, we're giving up short-term Onik Shabbos of skipping fish for, uh, for two months for the long-term Onik Shabbos of keeping fish affordable because if we don't do this and the fish prices remain in the stratosphere, poor people won't be able to afford fish. Even though it's true that Hashem pays you back, he says, for your expenses of Shabbos, 
But poor people don't rely on that. You're not supposed to rely on that. You're supposed to buy what you can afford, he says. So if the prices remain very high, lots of people won't have fish, he says. So even forgetting about simple economic relief, even if we just weigh the, 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 the owning Shabbos itself on a short-term and long-term basis, what we're doing is we're giving up some owning Shabbos in the short-term to preserve owning Shabbos in the long-term of having fish. And therefore, he says, it's just like the case in the Gemara, we're allowed to accept upon ourselves, we're allowed to, uh, as a harasha, to disregard the halacha in the short term for the purpose of changing, uh, affecting substan- significant and hopefully permanent change in the economic conditions, which will result in the long-term improvement in our ability to fulfill mitzvahs. That's what Rabbi Shemuel did in the case of the birds, he says. According to Rashi, as a harasha, he violated the halacha in the short term. He issued a incorrect ruling in the short term in order to preserve the long-term ability of women to afford birds and to fulfill the halacha. That's what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to give up owning Shabbos in the short term by boycotting fish in the, in, in the service of the goal of, of keeping fish prices low for the long term, and that will enable us that will enable us to the that, that will enable us to, to to get more owning Shabbos in the long run than if we simply allow the fish sellers to gouge the prices of the fish. And this Tamach Tadek is widely quoted by the Achronim. Achronim debate it. Some Achronim say there's no raya from Rashi because again Rashi is a das yachid. They say most Rishonim say that no, he would never issue a false halacha. He would never tamper with the laws of Carbonos and Tumah and Tara just because of uh, he wanted to change economic policy. The many many posts can go like Tosfos that he that he that he felt that was the halacha Mikradin it was the halacha it was only a chumra to be more machmer. So many posts can challenge his arguments. On the other hand, many posts can point out, as we said, giving up fish is not the end of the world. And many posts can, in general, do accept this Tzemach Tzedek, wh- whether his raya from the Gemara is a is a uh, is a is a compelling raya or not. The Tzemach Tzedek is widely quoted that using a boycott to, uh, as a countermeasure against those who are gouging prices is, some, is, a, legitimate and, uh, is a legitimate thing to do. And the question, of course, always is, as I mentioned earlier, how do you decide what is a, what's gouging and what is simply, there's not enough of something, the prices are going to be high. That, uh, that's, how, that's how the free market works. Chaim Jachter talks about a case uh, that occurred about a decade ago a boycott campaign in Israel to boycott cottage cheese because people thought the price was too high. Again, I have no idea what the market was like in Israel for cottage cheese 10 years ago. I have no idea what the prices were. I have no idea how, how the posts came involved were defining gouging, what, what makes it gouging as opposed to, again, ordinary supply and demand. But he quotes an article by Yehuda Zoldan, a uh, prominent Israeli datilumi uh, posek who frequently writes on matters of social concern, as he puts it, who, uh, who analyzes this question. He notes that boycotts, boycotts uh, are legitimate tools, but they're blunt instruments, and they, have, uh, they, they hurt the employees of the companies. They hurt, this, this harks back to Rabbi Tabas's point. He was making the point in a lenient direction that, that even if the producer is non-Jews, but if his workers are Jews, then that's, that's Jewish. And Rabbi Zoldan is making the point in the opposite direction. If you boycott a company, that's nice, but who's getting hurt more? The, the board and the CEO or the workers who are going to lose their jobs or who are going to... Uh, depends on the case, obviously. So boycotts are uh, tricky instruments to use. They're, they're, they're blunt and they're not, uh, they're not always so easy, he says, to, uh, to, um, to uh, properly target in a focused and uh, an accurate way. 
Rabbi Jachter goes on, he brings the various evidence of Chazal's concern for, for gouging. Again, Chazal certainly were concerned about gouging. There are numerous sources in Chazal where they did not approve of, they had uh, bitter words for mafkiei sha'arim, for those who try to gouge prices. But again, how to define gouging is not always clearly defined. Chazal have certain limited rules about profiteering, about uh, charging on staples, taking profits beyond a certain amount. Difficult to know how it, apply, how it applies in practice. But at the end of the day, the, 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 a boycott would potentially be legitimate. A boycott would be legitimate. Various post-game invoke the Gemara's notion that if you want to make communal policy, you have to, people shouldn't just do it on their own. As a mass movement, they should consult Adam Chashuv, they should consult a distinguished person, which some post can say means an expert, an, an, honest, an, an honest and well-informed expert, which Rezoldan apparently said uh, that, that the Israeli, that the Israeli um, Consumer Protection Agency would be considered Adam Chashuv. It was their job to be an impartial and expert arbiter of consumer protections. Again, politics is politics. People have different levels of faith in the government's ability to be a, an expert and uh, unbiased and impartial uh, advocate of the impartial arbiter of the balance between consumer protection and market protection. But uh, there's always going to be complaints about Adam Khashoggi, whoever he is. So the bottom line is it's difficult to know how these halachas would be, would be applied in contemporary circumstances. In the Temach Tzedek's time, the boycott was initially was initially proposed by the community, by people in the community. They eventually turned to the Temach Tedek, asking him if it was a good idea, and he felt that it was. But he doesn't give us, in this case, the process of how we determine it, exactly what criteria we use. But the basic idea, he says, based on this Gemara of the birds, as we've seen, there are similar Gemaras regarding the Pats on Pesach and the Hadassim on Sukkos. The basic idea is that with that Poskim are willing to use Halacha, they're willing to make short-term sacrifices on Halacha, they're willing to threaten to dispense with chumras and dispense with hidurim. They're even willing sometimes possibly to issue a false ruling or to threaten to issue a false ruling for the purpose of this imperative goal of maintaining prices that the halacha considers reasonable.